Welcome to the St. Matt's 6pm podcast, where you can listen to sermons from our evening service. We're in week two of our series in the Messed Up Family of God, and we have these booklets. If you haven't got one, we've got some more in the foyer that'll have the sermon passage and it'll have at least the Genesis 16 reading. So we're going to get into that in a moment, but let me pray. Lord God, we thank you for all your word, even the really hard bits of scripture. And we pray you would use these passages tonight to teach us more about following Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, Many years ago now, when I was a young adult, uh, my church held an evening for young adults that wanted to consider ministry in the future. It was run by a senior minister who didn't really know many of the young adults. It was a big church, but uh, while I've forgotten nearly everything he said that night, whether or not it ended up impacting my future career choices, at one point he said something that really stuck with me. Without knowing really any of us, he told each of us, all of us, that we should get counselling. He just thought that was a good blanket rule for life. And then he had uh, a nice little expression that went with it. Hurt people, hurt people. Healed people, heal people. I'm seeing a few nods. I think maybe some of you have heard this expression before. People that have been hurt, hurt others. People that have been healed can bring healing to others. And over the course of my life since then, I've seen that to be true so many times. But the first part of that saying, hurt people, hurt people, oh, that's especially true in Genesis. That's so apparent in the passage we just looked at. As we look at this passage this evening, we're going to see how the mess of the past is creating mess in the present. We see how this family aches for a healer. We see how humanity needs a saviour. We left off Abram and Sarai's story as they came out of Egypt last week. A whole lot richer and a whole lot more messed up. In Genesis 13, which we've skipped, uh, Abram and his nephew Lot divide up the land and they part ways. And then in Genesis 14, uh, Lot gets kidnapped in a a, a battle and Abram leads this military raid to rescue him. Then we get to Genesis 15, verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your great reward. Don't be afraid afraid. I'm not sure why God specifically says this to Abram now, but I suspect it's actually just something Abram needs to hear all the time. Don't be afraid. Fear is always lurking for Abram. It's always impacting his decisions, just like we saw last week when he made the decision to protect himself and sell off his wife in Egypt. But in love, God is drawing close to him and looking to reassure him and give him courage. I am your shield, your great reward. Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm going to protect you, and I'm going to bless you. But Abram is prone to doubting. He points out that as much as God might say he's going to protect and bless him, maybe even as much as God's already done those things, there's still this one promise that God is yet to fulfill the promise for a child. And so Abram struggles to trust. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me? 
since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. In ancient times, it wasn't uncommon for a person without children to adopt a favoured servant. And so that servant would take on the role of a child by caring for the person that adopted them in their old age. And then after that person dies, they continue in the role of the child by inheriting. Abram remembers God's promise of offspring, but he doubts. He's afraid. And in his head, he's already made a backup plan to adopt his servant, Eliezer. A backup plan, just like he made a backup plan when he went to Egypt. So again, God reassures him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Then God takes him outside and says, look at the stars. Count them, if indeed you can. That's what it's going to be like for your offspring. That's how many descendants you're going to have. And Abram, who is so prone to fear and doubt, this time he believes God. And God Credit it to him as righteousness. In calling Abram righteous, God is calling him morally upright. God is declaring that Abram is in a right relationship with himself. Now, obviously, we know from his past, just last week, that Abram isn't actually morally upright. But God accepts him anyway. God has relationship with him anyway. Because Abram shows a willingness to trust God. That's what God wants from us. He doesn't want us to clean ourselves up or pretend that there's no mess. He wants us to trust him. In the next few verses from there, God makes a covenant with Abram, uh, again, encouraging Abram, trying to help him work through his doubts by reassuring, reassuring, reassuring. But we're skipping that. We're going to jump to chapter 16. There's a little bit of time jump. We're not sure how long it's been since this promise in chapter 15, but it's now been 10 years since Abram and Sarai have made it to Canaan. 10 years and still no child. The weight has been wearing on Abram, but even more so, especially so on Sarai. She has no children. But she does have a slave. Sarai said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Hagar, a young slave woman, is forcibly taken and made to sleep with Abram in the hope that she will conceive so that Sarai can then take her child and raise it as her own. Now, it looks like the narrator just kind of presents the facts of this situation. There's no moral judgment. And there's no explicit statement of wrong. And if we don't read carefully, it'd be really easy to assume that God is just kind of fine with this situation. Except, notice how their actions are described. We see in verse 2, it's Sarai's idea. Then in verse 3, there's this phrase... That doesn't even need to be there. The, sentence would just, the, the whole story would just flow without it. But it says in verse 3 that Sarai took the slave and gave her to her husband. She took and she gave. Do you know the last person in Genesis who took and gave? 
It's in the Garden of Eden. It's Eve. In the Garden of Eden, Eve takes something forbidden and then gives it to her husband. And Abram, just like Adam, is passively complicit in this whole thing, this whole plan. On the surface, it looks like this is all fine, but actually, the writer of Genesis couldn't find a more emphatic way to declare the sin of Abram and Sarai here than to compare this to Adam and Eve eating forbidden fruit and breaking the world. Their actions are wicked. We can make excuses. This was a different time, different culture. Slavery was more accepted then. It's it's just natural in this culture that Abram and Sarai would see Hagar as just property rather than as a human being. But just because our culture blinds us to sin doesn't make it less sinful. Their lack of empathy for Hagar is really confronting. I think we've already seen Abram's motivation for this plan. Once again, his fear is killing off his willingness to show empathy and love. He's been waiting too long for a child. He's forgotten the reassurance God gave him back in chapter 15. He doesn't have faith in God, and he's so afraid of not having a child, of not having anyone to continue his legacy in the world, that he turns to another backup plan. His fear leaves him broken. And hurt people hurt people. In Sarai's case, I think it's a little more messy. You know, this is the first time she's come up in the Genesis story since what we looked at last week in Genesis 12. She's not in Genesis 13. She's not in Genesis 14. She's not in Genesis 15. She comes up here in 16. This is the first time she's come up since her husband sold her to another man in Egypt. Can you imagine how disposable she must feel in this marriage? Can you imagine how expendable she fears she is? Her husband has already given her up once. What's to stop him from doing it again? In this ancient culture, her primary role as a wife is to bear a child, and she can't. Her treatment of Hagar is still sin, make no mistake. But she looks like someone who is responding badly to a stressful situation due to trauma. Hurt people hurt people. Hagar does conceive. And when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. She started showing Sarai contempt. The slave is looking down her nose at the owner. And Sarai realizes she's created the exact situation she was trying to avoid. She was worried about being expendable, and then she went and replaced herself. And Hagar, looking down on Sarah, is Hagar poking at Sarah's deepest insecurity again and again and again. We might want to shake our heads at Hagar for forgetting her place and endangering herself. But after a lifetime of slavery, after this appalling plan by Sarah, is it any surprise that she's trying to get back at her? Hurt people hurt people. Sarai is furious and blames the situation on Abram. And Abram, fearfully, 
avoids the situation once again. He reverts back to his passive sinfulness. And he says, your slave is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think is best. It's a mess. And so Sarai starts mistreating Hagar so badly that she runs away into the wilderness. Being alone in the desert is better than this. Except being alone in the desert, she's not alone. God has seen her, followed her, found her. He appears to Hagar in the form of an angel. He speaks with her and tells her to return to Sarai, to submit to her. That's a really, really hard moment. Why on earth would God tell her to go back? I want to be really clear and really careful at this point. If you are experiencing an abusive relationship, this passage isn't teaching that you have a spiritual responsibility to stay. Just because God tells Hagar to go back and submit doesn't mean that's what God is telling you to do. In fact, the next time Hagar is in a situation like this, God enables her, he empowers her to leave Abram and Sarai forever. If you're in a really hard relationship, if you're in an abusive relationship, I do not want to at all give the impression that I'm offering some one-size-fits-all counsel from up the front. Although if you are in a situation like this, I do want to encourage you to seek counsel or help for your situation. God's directions to Hagar aren't God's directions to you, but if you do find that Hagar's situation resonates with you, I do want you to notice how God loves Hagar. He finds her when she's lost. He sees her when others look away. He makes promises to her. God loves Hagar and desires good for her. And he loves you and he desires good for you too. I think that the reason that God in this situation calls Hagar to return to Sarai is because there is blessing in Abram's proximity. God has made a very specific promise to Abram. Do you remember it last week? He says, I will bless whoever blesses you. And God wants to ensure that his powerful promise, that powerful promise to Abram will sweep up Hagar as well. Which is why in verse 9 he can say to her, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. So Hagar does return to Abram and Sarai. But only after giving God a name. She calls him Atar El-Rai. You are the God who sees me. You are the God who sees me. That's a beautiful name, right? And doesn't it just remind you of Jesus? Doesn't it remind you of Jesus who sees the woman at the well? Jesus who sees the man born blind. Jesus who sees the man possessed by so many demons. Jesus who sees the crowds harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You are the God who sees me. That's our story. So what can we learn from it? In these verses, we learn a lot about who God is. 
we see that God is kind when others are cruel, that God protects when others are passive, that God sees when others look away. We see that God is always faithful to his promises, even when Abram and Sarah are so faithless. And we also see that God is far more patient with us than we are with him. Abram and Sarah lose patience waiting for God to keep his promise and they make their own horrible backup plan. But God still doesn't give up on them. He's going to keep working on them despite their fears, despite their sin. He's going to achieve his purposes. Their mess cannot overcome God's grace. God is far more patient with us than we are with him. But he's not just patiently putting up with us. If we belong to Christ, then he's patiently at work in us too. As we read through Genesis, we see the sins of Abram and Sarai kind of crash into each other and then echo on through their own futures and into the coming generations as well. They're trapped by past decisions and experiences. They're slaves to fear and insecurity. Hurt people hurt people. And there's a natural and reasonable concern that that could be our story too, right? We might feel doomed to follow in our father's footsteps, our mother's footsteps, or hopeless to let go of bitterness, or cursed to self-sabotage. Our past scars and present pains impact us more than most of us can see. And hurt people hurt people. But unlike Abram and Sarai and Hagar, if we put our trust in Jesus, we have his spirit living in us. That's a really big difference. And so their story doesn't have to be our story. Our past story doesn't have to be our future story. Hurt people hurt people, yes. But healed people heal people. And Jesus can bring healing. And it's hard to do this topic justice in just a few minutes, but I want to try and flesh that out a little bit more, that little, bit, that little idea. What does it mean that Jesus brings healing? What does it mean that Jesus can offer healing? It means we're going to go a bit longer, but I went shorter last week, so you're all fine. This week, I've spent some time reflecting on where I have experienced healing from Jesus, where I have experienced healing, where I am experiencing healing, and where I'm, I feel like at least I'm yet to experience healing. And I also reflected on what God has particularly used in my life in order to heal me. And it's that second list I want to reflect on with you. What God has done in particular, how has God brought me healing? Uh, I want to talk about that, not as a perfect example, obviously, but as an example of how God can be at work. So number one, God has brought me healing through truth. God has brought me healing through truth. Over time, since I became a Christian, I have slowly been absorbing truths about God, about his love for me, about his promises to me, and they've settled deeper and deeper and deeper into my heart. I've read books that were helpful. I'm currently reading Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. I'm not very far in, so I can't recommend it yet, but I'm giving it a shot. Uh, I've found the lyrics of different songs helpful. Uh, Now my debt is paid, it is paid in full, and now I'm panicking for getting the rest of it. Tell me what's the rest of that. By the precious blood that my, blood that my Jesus spilled. Yeah. Uh, now the curse of sin has no hold on me. Even the sun sets free is free indeed. Like th- those lyrics remind me of truth in my head. 
but I've especially found Scripture itself helpful in reassuring me of what's true. So I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's scripture God has been reminding me of to convict me of truth over time to bring release to my heart. God has used truth to free me from fear and insecurity. Number two, God has brought me healing through relationship. God has brought me healing through relationship. Not just any relationship, but a particular relationship. The truth I've been learning hasn't just been head knowledge. It's not just like kind of in one ear, out the other. God has been teaching me truth in the context of a relationship with him. I sometimes hear churchgoers talk about God and stuff or faith and that kind of thing. And whenever I hear phrases like that, it makes me think that their understanding of God is a bit fuzzy. He's more of an idea, a concept. He's like gravity or the force. He's more of an it than a person. But the God of the Bible who revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ is very much a person. I look back at chapter 15 when God personally seeks to offer healing to Abram in his fear by drawing close in a vision and offering relationship. Do not be afraid. I am your shield, your very great reward. A number of years ago, I made a conscious decision to start addressing God in more personal terms, to speak with Jesus in prayer, to address the Holy Spirit, because God has offered me a relationship with himself. And when I know and remind myself that he's a real person, that really knows me, that he's the God who sees me, the truths of Scripture start to take on deeper meaning and have more power in healing my hurts. Number three, God has brought me healing through reflection. You might want to use a different word than reflection, but I like that word. God has brought me healing through reflection. Over time, God has helped me get better at self-examination and at looking back at past experiences. I found prayerfully journaling through negative emotions like anger or shame or resentment, really helpful. And I've tried, as I reflect, to find what Tim Keller, a Christian thinker, calls the sin behind the sin. I don't know if you're familiar with this concept, but look at Abram, for example. It was absolutely sin for him to sleep with Hagar. Shouldn't have done it. But the solution isn't just to say, stop sleeping with your slaves. There's a sin behind the sin that needs to be addressed. There's something deeper going on. Abram needed to deal with his fearful distrust of God that kept pushing him to hurt others in different ways. And God has been bringing me healing and he's been slowly helping me as he's been helping me see these controlling sins behind the other sins so that I can bring them to him and ask his power to help overcome them as well. Number four, God has brought me healing through community. God's brought me healing through community. Community with others has been powerful in healing me in some really simple sounding ways. 
getting to enjoy new ways of relating to people where everyone in the circle wants to honour Jesus. Some beautiful dynamics at play when that happens. Or just being able to share a burden with another follower of Jesus and know that they'll really listen to me and that they'll pray for me. That can be so liberating. But God has also used other people to bring me healing in more intentional and profound ways, like in being mentored or in getting counselling. Like I mentioned earlier, my old minister would argue we should all get counselling. But perhaps your situation and your past experiences might particularly benefit with specialised care from a psychologist or someone similar. Hurt people hurt people. Healed people heal people. Obviously, I'm still very much a work in progress, just like all believers are. We're all a mix of hurting and healing as we follow Jesus. But fortunately, God is more patient with us than we are with him. And as Paul puts it in Philippians, the God who began a good work in us will bring it to completion until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hurt people, hurt people. Healed people, heal people. And Christ offers healing. Lord God, we thank you so much for that truth. But we ache. We ache from past scars, from scabs that keep seemingly continually getting ripped off again and again and again. We know we hurt others and it frustrates us even more, but we so badly need you to be the circuit breaker. We need Jesus Christ to intervene. And so we pray that you would please be bringing us healing, that we would encounter truth in relationship with you, that we'd be transformed by the power of reflection and community. We pray that you'd be setting us free from insecurity and fear and sin, that we might be healing agents in the lives of others for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. St. Matt's West Bend Hills 6pm congregation is a collection of people who want to be changed by Jesus to have a deeper connection with God, deeper community with one another and deeper concern for our world. We'd love you to join us on a Sunday soon. For all the details, check out our website at stmats.org.au and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a sermon.